uh, about 25 or so years ago. I, I came uh, back to the U.S. after being overseas for a couple of years, and this is about 1996 or whatever that math is. Um, I was beginning to look for a job, and um, believe it or not, especially youth, I wanted to tell you that there were these old-fashioned things called newspapers. And he actually had his paper, and he actually print words on it, kind of like a book. But these came out sometimes daily. Uh, this is a particular weekly newspaper. And I want to share with you uh, one of the ways you used to find jobs back in the day. Because I'm cool, I can say it that way. Back in the day, you used to find jobs because you'd open a newspaper. For me, it was the uh, Orange County Register. And I was opening it up, and there would be a section called the want ads. And in the want ads, there would be page after page after page of people publishing their job openings. And I remember scanning through, and I mean, there were probably 500 jobs, probably, I don't know, maybe 5,000 jobs listed. I don't know. There were a lot. And I remember about every third job uh, listing was for something I'd never heard of. It was called telemarketer. I thought, marketer, must be something about marketing. That might be kind of neat. And um, I, I continued to look, and I, I'm glad I found a different job. It ended up being uh, one of my uh, more favorite jobs. But when I say the word telemarketer, I want to show a hands. How many of you enjoy receiving a call from a telemarketer? Now raise them high. Raise them high. I see one hand who's changed his mind. Nobody. Let, let me ask you a different question. I'll ask it this way. How many of you enjoy being placed on a no-call list? Raise them high. Yeah, about half of us. Yeah, I, I enjoy no-call lists. They're, they're much better. <laughs> and uh, I think there are a lot of reasons that we probably don't like, most of us, uh, telemarketing calls. They're intrusive, aren't they? We, we didn't ask to be pestered. We didn't ask to be talked about or talked to. Uh, often it's bad timing, right? It seems like it never fails. You've just spent time preparing a meal and you've gathered the people in your home and you're just sitting down and the phone begins to ring. It's bad timing. Or maybe you're right in the middle of a great fight with your spouse and you don't want that interrupted. Or It's just bad timing, it seems, all around there. It's intrusive. It's bad timing. It's also really impersonal. This is probably, for me, the thing that I like the least about it is that it's, it's just impersonal, right? It's, you know that they're not seeking a relationship or to develop a relationship. They're either trying to sell you something, which, you know, is okay in itself, I guess, but nothing wrong with selling things. But, or worse, they're trying to get information from you that they may want to do something nefarious with. Now, I know when I say intrusive or bad timing or impersonal, you might think I'm talking about evangelism today. <laughs> But I'm not. That's a, that's a future time, very shortly. There, even uh, these robocalls, you've all gotten them now that are uh, these computerized voices, right? And, and you can always tell, not just because of the tone of the message, but the words that they use, because they're often not using American English. They'll say something like, We have called to ask you about your query. And I just want to pause right there and like, Query? Who uses the word query? Or uh, you might have received one that says something like, uh, the barrister now has your file. I'm thinking, what? We use the word lawyer here, or law firm. We don't talk about barrister. That's that's a British English term. Sometimes my, my recent favorite is when they call and speak in a language I don't speak. Like I've been getting a lot in Chinese lately. And I don't speak Chinese, but I love those who do. Ni hao. Truly, I do. So these, these calls come, and the, the worst part for me is that they're impersonal. Would you agree with me that it's better 
to receive and recognize a personal call from somebody that you know and want to actually be with. That's so much better, isn't it? I remember at that same time in the mid-90s, Susan and I were courting, and I was doing my best to to make her say yes when I proposed marriage. And, um, and there was such a difference. This is before call um, caller ID, so you always took a chance when you answered your phone. You remember those days? Um, you, you didn't have all the, the great screening devices now. And I remember the phone would ring, and I didn't know who was on the other end, but I hoped who it was because I loved her. And I wanted to talk with her because it was through those interactions that we were building our relationship together because it was personal. And that makes all the difference, am I right? Yeah. Would you still talk to me if I called you? She was in a different country even back then. Today, I want us to talk about and to consider just for a few minutes before we share in the Lord's Supper together is this. The idea of how much better it is that God is personal. You know, there's a thought in the world that even, it's called deism. It's this idea that that God created the world and uh, put life on it and then stepped away from it. It doesn't really have a lot of interaction. That's a certain theological viewpoint. The Bible over and over again does not give us that picture of God. The Bible tells us and reminds us and screams to us and gently whispers to us that God is intensely personal. That God loves you individually and that He knows your name. So I just want to talk for a minute about that idea of God being a personal God. And more than that, that God wants a really great relationship with you. No matter where you might find yourself Today or in this season of your journey of life, God wants a really great relationship with you. Even if you're the type of person who who seemingly has it all or has it all together. Are you that type of person today? You may think you know people like that, right? There are people in our lives, right, that you think have it all. And you think they have it all together. We all have people like that in our lives. And I want you to know that we live in a county full of people that seemingly are that way. They seem seemingly have it all, and they seemingly have no problems at all. I want you to know that God loves people like that, and God wants a personal relationship with people just like that. Acts chapter 10, we're going to look at three little vignettes of the Bible, and I hope they connect in your mind and heart in some way. Three different types of people that God comes and He calls and He meets and, and He demonstrates the personal quality of his desire to relate to people individually. And here's one of them, Acts chapter 10, one of my favorite chapters and stories in the entire Bible is the story of Cornelius and Peter. <clears throat> Many of you remember that Peter uh, had, had this great transformation after Jesus rose from the dead and Peter is now on the forefront of evangelism and, and preaching the word of God to the people and he has this amazing encounter and that's uh, where God lowers the sheep down and these animals and, and you have to really understand some of the Jewish background of the story but God is telling Peter through this vision that people of other ethnicities are not to be kept at a distance but they can be brought near because God wants to bring them near. And at the same time that God is working in Peter's life in, in this particular space, in a different space to a person unknown to Peter, a man named Cornelius. Cornelius was a Roman man. 
And uh, the Bible says in Acts 10, uh, verse 1, it gives some description about Cornelius. And I want you to see here how Cornelius seemingly has it all, and he seemingly has it all together. At Caesarea, the Bible says, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. Now, I just want to stop right there. The story goes on because Cornelius also has a vision from God. And he does what God tells him. He sends some people to go fetch Peter. Peter comes back. And he preaches and shares the good news of Jesus to Cornelius and his entire household. And they come to faith in Christ because God was in the midst of of their encounter and he was organizing and ordaining it. But here's what I want us to think about with Cornelius is that Cornelius was a successful guy in his work. He's described as a centurion. He was a man who had authority. He was a boss among other soldiers. He, was, he had proven himself and he was successful in his workplace. He was also successful in his family and his family's life. He was, he was a man who was able to organize his family and to get them all aiming in the right direction, the same direction together. And spiritually, they're all described as being devoted Devoted spiritually, uh, he also had that together. He, he kind of had it all in business, his family life. He was a spiritual man, and he was generous to top it all off. He kind of makes me sick. <laughs> Cornelius seems to have it all, and he seems to have it all together. But what we find in Cornelius' life is that even with all of that, his life is still incomplete without a personal relationship with the personal Jesus Christ. It's incomplete. And so God stirs the heart of Peter and sends Peter to Cornelius. And in that moment, Cornelius comes to faith. And even though Cornelius seems to be a man who has it all and has it all together, his life only becomes complete when he enters in personally to a relationship with Jesus. And here's what I want you to know, is that God desires a personal relationship. He's not a distant God. He is an up-close and personal God. A God who walks with you and cares for you through your seasons of life. Number two, a whole different, let's change the scene and the setting. God also wants a great relationship with those who feel alone and who feel desperate. The exact opposite, perhaps, of the Corneliuses. Those who don't have it all. In fact, they have nothing. Those who seem to have no one. And those who are at a place in their life where they have no hope. And they're desperate and they're alone. We're changing the scene to Genesis chapter 21. And I want to frame the story where where we're going to see here in just a moment. You remember the story in Genesis 12 when God comes to Abram. And calls Abram to leave his place of familiarity and to go to a yet unknown to Cornelius place. God knew, but Cornelius didn't yet. And Abram in faith packs his bags and collects his family and he goes to this yet unknown place. And we, we elevate Abram as a man of great faith. And there's a promise given along the way that it would be through his descendants that God would bring a blessing into the entire world. And that's what he ended up doing through Jesus. But God wasn't working fast enough for Abram and Sarah, his wife. And so they thought that they would be helpful. They thought that they would help God along. Have you ever felt that way? God's not working fast enough. 
And so I'm going to kind of fill the gaps. I'm going to speed up the process. I'm going to grease the wheels instead of being patient and waiting on the Lord. And so what, what they do, they cook up a plan, and uh, Abram and Sarah are married, and Abram goes and, and Sarah's suggestion, and they, he comes in to, to Hagar, their, one of their servants, and they come together, and a baby comes, and his name is Ishmael. And when we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 21, Ishmael's probably a teenager, maybe 14, 15, 16 years old. Well, we find that Isaac now has been born between Abram and Sarah, Isaac has been, uh, God has reminded them that it's Isaac is the one promise of God, but God wasn't done with Ishmael either. So that's kind of a mystery how God will continue, even in our own mistakes, God can take that which was not intended from us, and God will, He can take bad things and turn it into something good for His purpose. And so He continues to work with and protect Ishmael. And along the way, what happens is that uh, when Isaac is being weaned, he's about two years old, uh, Ishmael is about, I don't know, a young teenager, 15, 16 years old, and as they're weaning Isaac, and he's turning in, moving from a baby to a boy, a young boy, um, uh, Ishmael is overheard and seen as laughing at, at Isaac, and um, uh, Sarah gets concerned, and they end up sending Ishmael and uh, Hagar away. And uh, God reassures Abram that he is not done and that he's going to take care of Ishmael along the way. And so here's when we pick up the story, um, God heard the boy. Uh, so here's what happens. They go out, they're out, they've run out of food and water. And Hagar, it's a, it's a terrible start to the story. Hagar comes to a place and she doesn't want to observe her own son die. So she leaves Ishmael under a bush here and she goes a little farther down the road. And... Um, They've run out of water. And I want you to see how God comes and intervenes in their life. Because God heard the boy crying. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven. And he said to her, what is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand. For I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes. And she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave it to the boy to drink. I want you to know that there are seasons in our lives. We know what they are when we feel alone. And we feel isolated. And we feel that we have come to the very end. And we feel desperate that God hears you. And He loves you. And He wants to enter into your pain and your challenges. When I think about Hagar and what she must have felt when her eyes saw the well of water there in her last desperate moment, my mind races to the words of Jesus when He spread out His arms and He says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to Me and drink. May he come to Me and drink. God wants a great relationship if you feel alone today if you feel desperate today if you feel like you have nothing left god still wants a great relationship and a relationship of restoration for you god also wants a great relationship with those who are relationally hungry and we're going to end with this those who are hungry relationally there's another story of a woman in a well Found in John chapter 4. 
And uh, you will probably remember the story. Jesus is walking, and he's on his way to go and teach. And he has to go through this region that most good Jewish people bypassed. But he, the scripture says he had to go through the region, and, and he finds himself at a well about high noon, the hot part of the day. People didn't come to draw water at that time of the day. So Jesus is there, and his disciples go off into town to go get some supplies, and Jesus is there. And this woman, who also is isolated, her weakness, what Bible scholars can only imagine was the reason that she came, came alone to fetch water at this time of the day, because she... She was a woman, we find out, who was relationally hungry, but quite empty inside. And she begins to talk. Jesus says, hey, can you give me a drink? And she was surprised that a man was talking to her, and a Jewish man at that. And, um, and so they begin this conversation, and she realizes this is not just any ordinary guy. And uh, she finally, at the end of the story, she goes into town, and uh, she's so amazed at this encounter with Jesus that she begins to talk to everybody in the town and says, you need to come out and come and meet this man at this well, because he's told me everything that I've ever done. He's an amazing person, and you need to meet him. And it's amazing how she turns into an evangelist just like that. But during this conversation, from the time they meet at the well and the time she leaves to go and get people to bring to the well... They have this conversation. Part of what Jesus says to her is found in Matthew 4, 4. Uh, I'm sorry, John 13, 14. She, uh, or John 4, 13. She's, Jesus says to her, um, you know, she's confused. She, Jesus is talking about something deeper with a, a spiritual thirst that needs to be quenched by the presence of God. The personal presence of God. And how we tend to look for it in a lot of substitutes. And, and he... he talks to her about the many marriages that she's had and the way she's tried to fill her life through these human relationships and how she's even now in a relationship with a guy who's not her husband. And, and she continues down this road that's a dead end for her. She has this thirst that longs to be quenched, but no matter where she's tried to fill it from what the world says will bring you happiness and contentment, she continues to be thirsty. And so Jesus says, I have a different water. And here's what he says in John chapter 4. He says, everyone who drinks this water, he points to the well. Everyone who drinks this water, you'll be thirsty again. I remember as a kid, I used to get so thirsty. And I would drink so much water. And I would get waterlogged. And I'd feel so bad. And I'd think, I'm never going to drink another drop again. I used to do this over and over again. And then about 15 minutes later, I'm like, I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. But Jesus says, whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What Jesus is saying, he's not talking about physical thirst. He's saying to her, you have looked to quench this thirst that is unquenchable anywhere outside of a personal relationship with a personal God that is given to you through the one Jesus. And so we come today to our meal and to the table where Jesus is our host. And he says, I give you a drink that will satisfy your thirst. And I give you a bread that will cover over your sin. And so those who have entered into a relationship with the Lord Jesus, this meal is for you. And we know what the elements are, and it's always good to be reminded of them. We, here in this church, we do this about once a month. 
And we do it at that frequency because we want to be reminded that, that God is a personal God. And nothing does that more regularly than this. That God came up close and personal. He didn't sit in heaven. He didn't stay away from the difficulties, the challenges of life. He came into the darkness of the world that we messed up. And He comes to bring His goodness into it. And so we remember that He is a personal, close God. And we have images of bread and a cup. We invite the deacons to come join me here at the front. Bread and a cup. Bread reminds us that Jesus' body was broken. That the sin, the punishment for our sin that separates us from God, it comes upon Jesus on the cross. And that the effect of that comes forward in the time so that when we would trust Jesus to forgive our sin, He has already paid the price and paid the penalty for that sin. And a cup that reminds us of the shed blood of Jesus. On the night that He was betrayed, Jesus took bread and He broke it. And He blessed it. And he handed it to those around that table. It says, This is my body. Broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Living and holy God. We gather around this table at your invitation. Because we are reminded that you are a God who is personal. That you know us and you know our names. And you know all about the things that bring us joy and sadness. And regrettably, we don't yet know as much about you as we should, or as we want. And so as we participate in this meal again today, would you stir our hearts in calling us to dive deeper with you, to know how personal you want to be, beside us, in us, under us, over us, going in front of us, and covering our back. You are the God who is personal and with us. Remind us of that fact.